Welcome back to another episode of the Brawn Body Health and Fitness Podcast. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Philip are going to be discussing pre-workout ingredients, specifically one in particular that happens to be the most effective ingredient when it comes to enhancing your workout performance according to the research. We then dive into discussing carbohydrate intake and the effect of low-carbohydrate diets and dietary approaches on overall athletic performance. And the results are not what you might think. This is an amazing episode jam-packed with so much content and valuable information. Highly recommend you take notes. Before we get to this episode, here's a quick word from one of our sponsors. Dr. Prince, welcome to the episode. Excited to have you on, man. Thank you. So for people who aren't familiar with your work and your research and what you do, could you kind of share a little bit about yourself with our listeners? Yes. Uh, so I am currently at uh, Grove City College. Uh, I am the uh, chair of the XI Science Department here uh, at Grove City College. Um, I'm actually uh, originally from uh, Cape Town, South Africa. Uh, came to the States in uh, 2005 on a uh, tennis scholarship. And this was the, at Georgia Southern University. So Georgia Southern University, uh, um, I got my <clears throat> bachelor's and master's in kinesiology. Um, and then from there, I went to the University of Pittsburgh and got my uh, PhD in exercise physiology, also minored in nutrition and specialized in human performance and nutrition kind of uh, along the way or along the career path. Um, I mean, really, my expertise include uh, nutritional ketosis, uh, sports performance, uh, sports nutrition, uh, exercise physiology. Most of my research is looking into uh, the science of carbohydrate restriction whether that be uh, obviously dietary approaches like low carbohydrate diets, ketogenic diets, uh, ketone supplements. Uh, and we just done other work as well, just with uh, supplementation uh, in general. Uh, we've done stuff on uh, energy drinks, functional ingredients containing energy drinks, caffeine, pre-workouts, uh, and more recently in the last couple of years, uh, you know, exogenous ketone supplements. Uh, and some of our studies, most of that is just is looking at uh, human performance. Uh, but some of the studies is also looking at, uh, especially, you know, dietary interventions, again, like low carbohydrate diet and how that impacts uh, overall cardiometabolic health. So that's very impressive. It sounds like you've kind of done a little bit of everything throughout your career. Yeah, uh, for sure. I mean, it's been it's been an interesting journey and we've we've done a good, good amount of research, especially over the last 10 years and there's a lot of stuff going on at the moment and there's a lot of really good things planned for the future yeah for sure so i would definitely consider you an expert in the realm of health and human performance and someone who really understands the role of diet nutrition and other supplementation and lifestyle factors on performance i really want to discuss low carb ketogenic diets with you but before we get to that I'm curious, you mentioned that you've done some research as it relates to caffeine and pre-workout and that sort of thing. And those are very trendy things these days, uh, we'll say. It seems like anyone who goes to the gym is concerned about, you know, getting their caffeine or their pre-workout drink or, you know, their pump thing or whatever before they start their workout. What have you found from a mm -hmm. research standpoint? Are, are the uh, different like powders and drinks effective? Do they make a difference or not so much? Yeah, so uh, one of the first studies we did was we, we looked at energy drinks, um, and specifically we looked at so obviously uh, the most popular energy drink is Red Bull. So we looked at um, Red Bull, right? Does Red Bull actually give you wings or, or doesn't it? <laughs> and so um, I wanted to look at um, running performance. Uh, most popular running distance is five k, right? Just your your average runner. I mean, does you know number of different five k's. So really that was the study looking at the impact of um, energy drink uh, consumption on five kilometer running performance. So, I mean, it's really, really simple, really basic, you know, energy drink or uh, sorry, Red Bull versus placebo on 5K performance. Um, and uh, basically in short, the results of that investigation showed that when they were taking the, uh, the energy drink, uh, it resulted in a significant improvement in their five kilometer running performance. And so that kind of resulted in a, um, some other studies to look at um, some follow-up studies to, to see, well, 
is it the uh, is it is it the whole drink? Is there some synergistic effect between all these ingredients? You know, because uh, Red Bull contains caffeine. Most pretty much all energy drinks, right, contain caffeine. Um, and, but then they contain other ingredients too, like obviously uh, in the case of Red Bull, a whole bunch of sugar. Um, and then, you know, taurine is another popular one. So there's all these other kind of uh, what you can call kind of functional ingredients in here. And so the next study that we did is we basically separated out these, all these functional ingredients. So we, we compared the whole drink. So Red Bull to just caffeine by itself, to just taurine by itself, to carbohydrate by itself. So the, the, the exact amounts that you would find in uh, basically 16 ounces of, uh, of Red Bull. So those were all the different conditions. We even had a control condition. So, and then we ended up with like, uh, I think 20, 20 subjects. And that study, there was, there, was no, there was no difference in any of the conditions on five kilometer uh, running performance. I mean, there was some effect, some uh, maybe potential ergogenic effect for the conditions that contain caffeine. I mean, obviously the whole drink contained caffeine and caffeine by itself. So those ca caffeine containing conditions did a little bit better than the non-caffeine containing uh, conditions. And so based on, based on that and some of, the, some of the other studies we've also done, like uh, we've done stuff on like pre-workout supplements containing uh, basically, uh, again, a lot of the pre-workout supplements also can contain stimulants like caffeine. So com comparing that to just caffeine by itself, um, most, of the, most of the studies I think is suggesting that um, it looks like caffeine by itself is resulting in the similar improvements compared to the, uh, the whole drink. Interesting. So all these other, so all these other ingredients in the drink uh, might just be there for show. And it's not really providing any additive effect or any additional effect to just caffeine by itself. And so some other studies have shown the same thing. We actually have another group right now uh, uh, who's, um, uh, who's doing a project on this. They're comparing uh, another energy drink, uh, Celsius, to uh, an equivalent amount of uh, caffeine. So we'll wait and see what on, on muscular performance. Uh, or endurance performance. So we'll see what that says. But again, I think the, the, the literature, uh, the studies that have compared, um, say, energy drinks or pre-workouts to the equivalent amount of, of caffeine usually show there's no additional benefit uh, of, the, uh, of the supplement over, that, over the benefits of what caffeine by itself does. So it's, I mean, we've known caffeine is an ergogenic age for, for a long time. And so um, maybe not totally surprising. Yeah, definitely. That's interesting that you kind of continued the studies and kind of teased out the exact mechanism there to look at the role of one specific ingredient, in this case, caffeine in the drinks that seems to be the most effective. I'm curious. So caffeine, mm -hmm. as we know, is a potent bronchodilator. So it makes sense that it could increase endurance performance by increasing the uh, diameter of your airways, making it easier to breathe, right? Running is aerobic in nature. Now, <laughs> from what I understand, it seems that that effect that it has on the bronchial, it has the opposite effect on the blood vessels. So caffeine causes vasoconstriction in general. And a lot of these different mm -hmm. pre-workout supplements that I've seen contain high amounts of vasodilators. So it seems like we kind of get this mismatch between something that causes vasoconstriction and vasodilation and I've always kind of been mm -hmm. curious as to how that mechanism balances out within the nitric oxide cycle, because it seems like we're sending like very mixed signals into the body. And, you know, in response to exercise, we do get that vasodilation response. But I've always kind of wondered, like, what effect does that have in other areas of the body when we cause, you know, mixed signals between dilate and constrict, dilate and constrict? Yeah, I mean, that's not something that we've uh, specifically uh, looked at in uh, any of the studies that we that we have done. I mean, most of it has just been looking at um, either just performance per se. Yep. Uh, like I said, running performance or, or some of the stuff has been um, um, looking at uh, muscular endurance or muscular strength. But yeah, I mean, caffeine has a, a wide range of, uh, you know, uh, different pathways that it can work through to um, ultimately improve performance, right? So uh, I mean, if, if you go look at the literature on that, that's, that's pretty clear. Um, but some of the, but yes, the, so the drinks, as you're, you're, I mean, you're correct. I mean, obviously it contains caffeine. Um, 
but then it contains some of these other substances too, uh, for example, like taurine. And so the studies that we've done, I mean, you would expect, for example, so compared to the placebo, to there to be a, a significant increase maybe in say like heart rate. So there's gonna be differences in, in heart rate as, as one of the variables that we measured. Um, at least comparing the energy drink compared to the placebo. Um, but there's, there's not, and uh, probably has to do with some of these other ingredients in it. So for example, taurine has been shown to basically oppose the effects of, you know, caffeine, you know, decreasing heart rate, well, you know, caffeine can increase heart rate. So, uh, so you're, you're correct. So it has these other, you know, ingredients in it that might have some opposing effects. But the point being, uh, I, I think, I mean, why is all these other ingredients contained within the drink since they don't seem to have any other additional or additive uh, effects? So, um, I mean, you can go down the list. I mean, you go, oh, well, taurine can maybe do this and this and this. Maybe can, there's some studies showing an improved performance, uh, obviously just carbohydrate. You know, so you're, you know, including that in there that can increase performance. So therefore you were putting this all together and it's going to increase performance but it doesn't seem to be the case when compared to just caffeine uh, by itself. So you might as well just save your money and just drink a cup of coffee or something like that. Yeah, for sure. And it seems like people in America don't have a problem drinking more coffee, right? Yes. <laughs> so as far as timing goes from your research, how like long before the start of a bout of exercise or a training session should people be consuming caffeine was it like 15 minutes immediately before hour before yeah i mean the, the traditional approach is 60 minutes so 60 minutes uh before a particular uh you know workout bout that seems to result in uh peak concentrations of you know caffeine in the circulation um and so that's got that's the timing and then the dosage is usually between three and six milligrams per kilogram of body weight so you kind of have to do um, a calculation to see, you know, for your body weight, how much caffeine you are you consuming. Uh, and again, this kind of between three and six range has been shown to be uh, ergogenic or yeah. performance enhancing. Yeah. Interesting. You also mentioned as we were talking about caffeine, one of the things that can impact performance is pre-workout carbohydrate intake. And I don't know if you've seen, but there's a lot of these online trends now where people are slamming like two or three rice crispy treats before they work out to try and increase their carb intake. Now, I know you've kind of looked at the opposite side of that and the impact of low carb diets and low carb eating approach on human performance. Before we get into it, what would you define as a low carb diet for people who aren't familiar? Is there like a cut line for carbohydrate intake that uh, consider that classifies someone as eating low carb versus high carb? Yeah. So, I mean, typically the definition for low carbohydrate diet is uh, when your uh, total your total well, uh, carbohydrate intake is less than 130 grams per day. Um, or from a percentage uh, standpoint, if your total caloric intake is representing less than 26% of your total caloric intake, you can say, oh, well, you're now you're consuming a low carbohydrate diet. Um, now, that's different compared to a very low carbohydrate diet or a ketogenic diet. Uh, so that's obviously lower in carbohydrate intake. So in that, in that scenario, your total carbohydrate intake is about 50 grams or less per day. So usually between about 20 and 50 grams per day, uh, or, your, uh, uh, or from a percentage standpoint, about 10% or less of your total calories is coming from, uh, from carbohydrate. So that's kind of the distinction between kind of just your here, here's where a low carb diet starts. And then obviously you can go even lower to a you know, ketogenic diet. And then you have uh, a, a, a moderate carbohydrate diet that's typically between about 26 and 45% total calories. And then your high carbohydrate diet is, you know, above that. So between 45 and uh, 65% uh, total calories. So that's usually the, the definition uh, that's given. Yeah, that's interesting. Great stuff. And it's interesting to me how there's so many applications for a low carb diet, you know, as we're going to discuss, it can impact performance, but it can also have a great impact on someone's underlying health. Uh, so I think about like Sammy Inkinen, the founder of Verda Health, the whole mm -hmm. company Verda Health is reversing people's type two diabetes using a low carb ketogenic diet approach. And it's mm -hmm. amazing how just changing the way you eat can have such a drastic impact 
on your overall health as a person. Yeah. For, yeah. And yeah, yeah, for, I mean, for sure. I mean, the literature is, is, is pretty clear that there seems to be a lot of, you know, health benefits associated with uh, carbohydrate uh, restriction. Um, and there's, you know, reasons obviously uh, for that. I mean, there's a lot of reasons. So it's, I mean, that's, that's a long conversation, um, but, <laughs> but primarily because I would say, uh, I mean, if, if you, if you're familiar with the statistics, I mean, a lot of people have uh, chronic diseases, um, you know, so you're looking at about, I think 60% of the population have uh, one or more uh, chronic diseases or conditions and 40% have like uh, more than one. Uh, 70% of the population is overweight, obese, you know, heart disease, cancer, diabetes, hypertension, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, these are uh, chronic diseases and th these are obviously, um, these, diseases, these diseases have existed obviously for a long time, but not in such epidemic proportions that, we, that we've seen, um, especially over the course of the last couple of decades. And so, again, if you do a deeper dive into the literature, there seems to be some common denominators uh, with, you know, between these diseases and conditions. And so in my opinion, and those of others, is that the common denominator or the real disease uh, is insulin resistance. So we're saying, well, insulin resistance is the root cause of, of these uh, myriad of different conditions. And then it results in all these different symptoms, you know, the hyperglycemia, the hypertension, right, et cetera, et cetera. So those are actually just symptoms indicative of the underlying condition, which is the insulin resistance or hyperinsulinemia. So there seem to be many different diseases and conditions that is linked to high insulin levels. So a good amount, a good chunk of the population is insulin resistant. I mean, if you're diabetic or pre-diabetic, you're definitely on that side of the spectrum. Well, that's over 50% of the population. Um, but there's other studies that have looked at um, uh, metabolic syndrome uh, showing, or just metabolic health in general, uh, showing that about 88% of uh, adults in the United States is metabolically unhealthy and have, uh, you know, whether it's increased rate circumference or high triglycerides, low HDL, high blood pressure, these are all markers of metabolic health. So you can may even make the case that maybe up to maybe close to 90% of uh, individuals in this country fall on this spectrum, right? Because insulin resistance, you can think of it as, as on a spectrum. Um, and so most individuals in this country is, or even globally is on one side of the spectrum, tilting more towards insulin resistance. So very, you know, simplistically, I mean, in, if you're insulin resistant, uh, that's another word for, you have some level of carbohydrate intolerance. So maybe it's, once you understand it from that perspective, now you look at all these randomized controlled trials and there's a lot of them. I mean, there's no shortage of randomized controlled trials looking at the science of carbohydrate restriction. And most of those studies, right, it's individuals who are overweight, it's individuals who are obese, individuals with metabolic syndrome, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, uh, cardiovascular disease risk factors, et cetera, et cetera. So these people are, are on that side of the spectrum. They're insulin resistant. Uh, and then they, uh, you know, the, one of the interventions is, you know, uh, a reduction in their carbohydrate intake and they benefit. They, they lose weight, their blood pressure improves, their, uh, uh, blood, their blood glucose improves. They go, oh, they start to be tapered off medications, uh, i.e. The, the symptoms that they were experiencing, if you want to think about it like that, right? So the underlying condition is insulin resistance. All these other things they're experiencing are uh, actually just symptoms. So the symptoms starts to alleviate or some cases... Uh, and some individuals start to uh, disappear. Um, and um, maybe that's because the, the correct strategy was implemented for that individual's current health status. Yeah, that's very interesting. And I've heard that before, that the common denominator amongst so many diseases is insulin resistance and poor metabolic health. And if mm -hmm. your body doesn't have the ability to utilize fuel sources effectively and efficiently, then everything else is obviously going to fall out of line. Uh, it's interesting, too, when we think about this from a little bit of, of a historical evolutionary approach, mm -hmm. how our nutrition has shifted as a species yep. over the past 40, 50 years, right? When you, you look ancestrally, humans didn't have like, you know, the grocery store down the road where they could get cupcakes and donuts and that sort mm -hmm. of thing. We didn't have all these different genetically modified forms of fruit out there that have been modified to taste extra sweet. And, you know, they're more pleasing to the taste buds, for lack of a better way to put it. 
uh, traditionally, not all fruits tasted sweet. Mm-hmm. Not all humans ate high carb diets. A lot of humans had to hunt and gather mm-hmm. food. So naturally it was whatever you could kill, whatever you could forage. Uh, and that consisted of a lot of unprocessed meats and other animal uh, protein and fat sources. And then a lot of wild berries or wild vegetables, things that wouldn't kill you if you ate them, which they kind of found through trial and error. Um, and it's just interesting to me how we have kind of de-evolved in a sense that we are now mm-hmm. getting away from what we've done for so long, for so many thousands of years. Yeah. And now, instead of eating like we always had, we're eating a lot more processed, refined grains and low quality stuff. And that applies not just to the high carb, you know, traditional American diet, but in some cases, I'll say it can apply to a low carb diet as well, because the overall diet you eat depends on the quality of the food that you're getting. So if you go low carb, but your primary fat source is margarine and vegetable oil and refined seed oil, you're probably Mm -hmm. not going to feel too good. Mm -hmm. But if you do it right, and you start eating more organ meats, pasture raised meats, pasture raised eggs, uh, pasture raised chicken, uh, you know, more natural things, wild berries, Uh, if your main fat source is something more like olive oil, coconut oil, macadamia nut oil, or grass fed butter, something along those lines, then you'll start to notice some of the benefits. But like anything, quality really becomes a factor in your overall uh, nutrition and eating approach. Yeah, for sure. So you you touched on the kind of um, looking at the historical or even anthropological evidence as pertains to to diets. And there's some good, you know, books you can go read or articles you can go read uh, on uh, that touches specifically on that. Um, But yeah, I mean, to me, if if you go look at the uh, kind of more historical or anthropological evidence, you know, looking at hunter gatherers, so meaning so from a human history standpoint, you know, we've that, that re- represents basically about 99.5% of human history, kind of pre-agricultural, you know, period. And so if you look at some of those articles, it's pretty clear that most, not necessarily all, but most hunter-gatherer societies would have derived most of their caloric intake from animal-based food. So obviously their, their protein intake and fat intake, right, would have been higher, well, compared to what we're eating currently. Um, so obviously you have to consider consider that right um what they were eating but also what they were not eating right so what they were not eating what are the foods that we are currently consuming right so for the you know so the the average person is consuming the what you can call the western diet or the standard american diet or whatever you want to call it uh and it's usually a highly processed or ultra processed diet so a lot of sugar flour grain-based products so those foods um these processed or ultra processed foods would have been uh, pretty much um, non-existent for most of human history. So you can make the argument, well, it's, it's, it's really these foods that are incompatible with our human biology and physiology. And as a result, uh, uh, it's resulted in, uh, you know, a lot of the chronic diseases and conditions that we have um, seen, especially over the last uh, couple of decades or so. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point is people were not meant to consume these processed foods that really come from more like of a lab or factory type setting. We're meant to eat stuff that comes from nature. That's an amazing point that you brought up there. When it comes to low carb eating, obviously, as we've just discussed, it can have a wide array of effects on overall health and underlying uh, health mechanisms. Mm -hmm. When it comes to performance, what effect does it have? Are we noting increased performance in endurance athletes in response to going low carb? Uh, and how about for like anaerobic athletes? So like powerlifter, strongman, or, you know, bodybuilder type stuff. Are there still benefits to going with more of a low carb approach or is performance more maximized with like a blend? Yeah. So, um, I, I can talk a little bit about what we've done yeah. and then, um, just looking at the, uh, kind of the 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 overarching evidence um pertaining to this question now that obviously could be a very long conversation um (laughs) but uh, but that that was something i became interested in a couple years ago um and so reason why is so i wanted to do uh you know start to do studies on um, low carb diets or ketogenic diets or just some kind of carbohydrate restricted diet. Uh, that became, that just, I became interested in that topic uh, a while ago. And um, 
there's there's a lot of there's a lot of studies out there from looking at uh, things from a health standpoint, um, and so that's that's great. Um, and we need to do that research, and people need to continue doing that research. But unfortunately, there's not a lot on the performance uh, side of it. So that's almost been a taboo subject. You're not supposed to really talk about that or do research on that. And so it's like, well, look, there's a lot to be done uh, from that standpoint. So let's do some research. Uh, lo looking at low carbohydrates compared to your kind of more prudent uh, diet, you know, uh, from a sports nutrition uh, standpoint, uh, the high carbohydrate diet. And let's see, um, let's see what we find. Right. I mean, so from if you're an athlete, I mean, you know that, um, <laughs> you know, uh, that um, pretty much you've been told to consume a high carbohydrate diet um, before uh, before your event, during your event, after your event. So the high carbohydrate diet uh, for athletes, I mean, that's been something that's been going on for the last you know 40 years or so. And so um Obviously, there's a lot of studies looking at the looking at high carbohydrate diets and it improving performance, carbohydrate loading, or uh, looking at uh, different uh, uh, different types of you know sugars that's being taken during exercise, right? Uh, you know, prolonging uh, performance and improving performance. But what about the opposite? Can I eat a completely diametrically opposed diet, right? A diet that's very low in carbohydrate but high in fat, and will I have similar in similar performance will i have will i see decrements in my performance improvements in my performance so that's what we wanted to look at and um one of the first people who studied this was um uh, stephen finney so you can go find uh stephen finney studies from the 1980s so he was looking at uh it was just a handful of highly trained recreational cyclists and they were uh eating a, a low carbohydrate diet for four weeks uh, and then compared to their usual diet, and they looked at uh, time to exhaustion. And their uh, time to exhaustion for cycling was similar between uh, the two uh, uh, you know, dietary approaches. So that was interesting. Um, and then really for the next couple of decades, there was nothing much on that uh, topic or the studies that were done looking at low-carb diets, um, uh, in my opinion, were usually pretty poorly designed. Uh, where the uh, low carb eating approach would last maybe a couple of days or a week or so. Uh, and then, so that would be the adaptation period. And then we say, well, um, look, it, it impaired their performance. And so um, there's some, what, what we have said is there, there's some limitations of this, uh, of this model. And um, one of the limitations of this traditional high carbohydrate uh, approach uh, of this doctrine, so to speak, is the fact that a lot of those studies, um, uh, a lot of those studies um, didn't allow for a, a sufficiently long enough adaptation period. Um, so even, even Stephen Finney uh, himself showed it. I mean, at least four weeks or more is sufficient enough. Um, and so, and then there's a lot of the other earlier studies um, is, uh, we would argue the hypothesis is wrong. Um, basically, there's been no, there's not been a lot of studies that has looked specifically at um, the hypothesis, which should be, uh, does, does high rates of fat oxidation induced by a high carbohydrate diet impair exercise performance, specifically uh, exercise performance that's uh, performed above this carbohydrate dependent threshold. And so what I'm saying in regards to that is, again, in the field of sports nutrition, um, there's really two reasons why we've told athletes to consume high carbohydrate diets. One of that has to do with your muscle glycogen stores, right? So um, that goes from research decades ago, showing that, well, the higher your muscle glycogen stores, um, the, uh, the, the longer you can uh, perform uh, exercise. And so how can you improve your muscle glycogen stores? You just eat a lot of carbohydrate, right? So you, you stuff your muscle and liver with as much carbohydrate as possible. And now you're pre-exercise muscle glycogen stores is, high, is, 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 is fully loaded. And now you start to exercise and you'll able to exercise for a longer period of time compared to uh, if your muscle glycogen stores weren't so full. So that's one reason. The other reason why we've told people to eat uh, or athletes to consume high carbohydrate diets has to do with the crossover concept. And the crossover concept, if, if you're interested in that, really has to do with this relationship between 
um, between carbohydrate and fat oxidation and in exercise intensity. So we're saying as the exercise intensity increases, your rate of fat oxidation goes down and your rate of carbohydrate oxidation goes up. And so that's that basically you're saying there that, oh, well, there's some exercise intensity at which fat oxidation peaks. And, and if you go above that intensity, your rate of fat oxidation cannot increase any further to meet the metabolic demands of exercise. And we're basically saying that um, if you go above this intensity, the exercise is becoming carbohydrate dependent. It's, it's dependent upon high rates of carbohydrate oxidation. And so if you look at the traditional studies on this, um, this carbohydrate dependent threshold, this uh, crossover point, so to speak, is for most athletes is occurring about 60% of their VO2 max. So most athletes uh, perform exercise or compete at least at 60% of their VO2 max. I mean, that's pretty much a moderate intensity, right? So since most athletes uh, are going at 60% of their VO2 max or above, usually actually much higher intensities, we're saying, well, because of this crossover concept, um, you, and because you're gonna be exercising well above this uh, carbohydrate dependent threshold, um, if you're gonna be exercising at that intensity, your rate of fat oxidation is gonna be low. And it's gonna be, it's, it's not gonna be high enough to provide sufficient you know, energy to fuel metabolism for your activity and rate of carbohydrate oxidation is, is high. So your, your activity is dependent upon high rates of carbohydrate oxidation. Meaning again, <laughs> you need to eat a high carbohydrate diet. So it's, if, you understand, if you understand that, right? So it really has to do with uh, this glycogen centric view of, of exercise performance has a lot to do with this uh, crossover concept and model, then you understand why there's been this um, high carbohydrate mentality in the field of sports nutrition for such a long period of time. And that's where we step in and say, okay, well, look, mo the, the hypotheses for most of these studies is actually incorrect. There's been uh, pretty much no studies that has looked at, well, does, does a uh, does high rates of fat oxidation induced by low carbohydrate diet actually impair uh, uh, exercise performance, especially when it's performed above this carbohydrate uh, dependent threshold? And again, um, most of these studies are uh, you know, insufficiently designed, almost they're, like they're set up to fail because the adaptation period is too short, at least four weeks or more. Uh, and again, most of, this, most of the studies that kind of show or prove this model to be correct um, this carbohydrate dependence model to be correct, this whole crossover concept. Well, all those athletes are on, already on a high carbohydrate diet. So they're already habituated to a high carbohydrate diet. And that's an important point because we know the habitual diet very strongly influences the metabolic response to exercise. And yeah, so as a result of that, that's then when we started to uh, um, do our own research on that topic. Uh, would you say something? Because if you want, then I can talk about some of the. <laughs> I, I was going to say those are interesting points that you brought up on the kind of like why we've pushed the high carbohydrate diet for so yep. long. Uh, and to me, it just doesn't make sense from a basic physiological perspective. So first off, going back to the crossover concept, uh, we know that that kind of varies a little bit depending on your training level. For some people in general, it might be 60% VO2 max that they start sure. to cross over. For someone, maybe it's 65, maybe it's 55, right? When you're at like 100% VO2 max and you're doing a full out sprint, 100 meter, I think that it's definitely beneficial to have a more carbohydrate fueled approach to eating because that's the main energy system that you tap into, right? The ATP PC system. You need fast, quick energy. You don't need to sustain yourself for a 5K, 10K or more endurance type event. When you look at these more endurance type events, even something as simple as a 5k, you're not a hundred percent VO2 max for that entire race. You mm -hmm. might be for the last little kick and leg, um, but you're not going to hold that intensity for that long. Uh, I, mm -hmm. you know, it's not humanly possible as far as I know. Um, so you have to kind of look at where you're sitting at for the duration of the event. And if you're going to be sitting around more of a, comfortable pace which for some people maybe that's a 10 minute mile for some people maybe that's a six minute mile it might vary then you have to ask yourself am i really dependent on carbohydrates right now or am i more dependent on fats and a lot of people will kind of fuel themselves for these races 
with high carbohydrate meals like the night before or two days before, you know, I feel like every high school athlete can relate to a pasta or pizza night a couple days before an event. And the thing is, when you eat that high carb meal, you know, a day or two days in advance, it's not going to stay as, you know, carbohydrate. Your body doesn't just store like, you know, half a pound of pasta in your body as plasma glucose. Instead, it stores it as body fat. So even though you ate carbohydrate, it's going to get converted into fat. That's how we store energy. So it just doesn't make sense to me to say that, you know, I'm relying on carbohydrates for energy when all that carb has been converted to fat by the time your, you know, performance and event comes around. And even if you are making the case that, you know, you're reliant on short, um, like bouts of like sugar type things, like I'm thinking of like those gels and like uh, granola bars and that sort of thing that people eat like the day of, like right before, or even during an event, you know, again, you have to ask yourself physiologically, is this what I want to do to my body? Because as soon as we put that thing in our body, now we have to shuttle blood to our GI tract to break it down and absorb the nutrients from it. So all that time, that blood that's now going into our GI tract for digestion is not going to our working skeletal muscles. So mm -hmm. if you could do the same event without consuming a carbohydrate, without consuming something that's taking blood away uh, from your working skeletal muscle, could that potentially increase performance because you have more blood de delivery to your muscles that are working? So that's mm -hmm. increased oxygen delivery, increased ability to flush out the um, waste products that develop and et cetera. And I'm by no means, you know, the, you know, perfect research expert on any of these things, but they're different kind of physiological points that kind of came up as you were discussing it. Yeah, I mean, you're basically, and you're, you're, you're describing this whole concept of, you know, carbohydrate loading, I mean, all, all that's, again, the reason for that is just to increase your muscle glycogen. So again, that goes decades ago to, to uh, you know, when people discovered this whole muscle biopsy technique to, um, to look specifically at, uh, uh, you know, glycogen status. And again, this has to do with this whole uh, kind of positive relationship between pre-exercise muscle glycogen levels and fatigue. And then all the whole gels and, you know, consuming obviously the, the drinks during exercise is just to um, uh, increase your carbohydrate oxidation, increase carbohydrate availability during the event. Again, that's, that's old studies, even in the 60s, 70s, et cetera, showing that, you know, when given carbohydrate, obviously during exercise, you're increasing the rate of carbohydrate oxidation that uh, pro, uh, kind of delays the onset or, or development of, of, uh, of fatigue. And so again, that's, that's one approach and that's been the traditional approach. So that's, that's fine. So if, you know, obviously athletes has been doing that for a while, you know, no, no issue with, with that. Maybe just make sure it's not impacting your health in the long term. But again, we, we were looking, well, is there another approach, right? Because again, for decades, you say, well, if you do the opposite, you're, you're going to impair your performance. So if you're an athlete, you don't want to impair your performance, right? So obviously as a result, you're not going to, you're not, you're not going to go on a low carb diet. Um, that's going to, impair your performance and so but again there there were some st studies done that maybe suggested that's not the case but the only way you would know is to to do the research right and to see if, if this is actually the case or not so like i said unfortunately shockingly a very few studies done on this topic so that's that's what we did a couple of years ago we got a group of highly trained recreational um competitive runners and we tested this hypothesis of does, does high rates of fat oxidation induced by low carb diet impair uh, high intensity, short duration endurance exercise performance that's performed above this carbohydrate dependent threshold, meaning so performed above 60% of your VO2 max. So what we did is uh, we, we, we took this, uh, this uh, you know, group of athletes and we um, put them on basically two six-week uh, diets, so either low-carb diet or the high-carb diet. Um, we did a lot of testing. Uh, we did uh, VO2max testing day one and day 39 of the 42-day you know, intervention period, uh, and we performed a series of five-kilometer running time trials, uh, day four, 14, 28, and 42, if I remember correctly. So basically, um, VO2max testing, you know, at the beginning and end. And then uh, basically every two weeks we're performing another five kilometer time trial. Um, and so that's what they did on the low carb and the uh, high carb uh, uh, diet. And so 
what we're looking at here is uh, obviously we're looking at uh, performance, but we're also looking at uh, uh, you know uh, metabolic factors. So we're looking at you know, rates of carbohydrate oxidation, rates of fat oxidation, uh, you know all kinds of physiological, metabolic, and perceptual uh, variables. So we, we we got a lot of we measured you know everything that we possibly could uh, during this um, basically six week uh, intervention. And so what we found was, was, was interesting. Uh, so for example, number one, specifically just looking at the uh, VO2 max test, right? So if you've done a VO2 max test before, um, so sure, if you, if you do that test, you get your, yeah, here's my, here's my VO2 max. Again, that's great. But you can also look at the time to exhaustion, right? So how long do you last on the actual test, right? Because that's a much better predictor of performance, not necessarily, well, here's my VO2 max, where your time to exhaustion is a much better indicator of actual performance. So the question, that, so that's an indicator of your maximal endurance exercise capacity. So was time to exhaustion different between the two conditions? No, it wasn't. So that was, what, that was the same. So no decrement in performance there. Um, when you do a VO2 max test like that, you can measure uh, rates of the uh, carbohydrate and fat oxidation. So like what's the peak rate of fat oxidation? And the peak rate of fat oxidation in low carb, uh, on the low carb diet was about 1.2 grams per minute. Um, and that was twice as high compared to the rate of fat oxidation on the uh, high carbohydrate diet, which is what, about 0.6 grams per minute. So we've seen this in studies when people go on a low carb diet, the rate of fat oxidation usually double. So, so the study succeeded in the sense that, well, so does the low carb diet result in significant rates of fat oxidation? Yes, okay, so it's at least double as much. So now does this high rate of fat oxidation impair uh, performance? So that was the next question. So now we looked at five kilometer running performance. So when they ran the 5K, they ran it uh, about just over 80% of their VO2 max. So, I mean, th these are good athletes. Um, I mean, one of the guys even qualified twice for the Olympic trials. So they, they're, they're running it pretty, pretty, you know, pretty fast. I mean, so they're going just over 80% of their VO2 max. So well above this carbohydrate dependent threshold. And what we found is, um, interestingly, during the first 5K, which was done on day four, performance on the low carb diet was impaired compared to the high carb diet. But not day 14, not day uh, was it, uh, 28 and 42. So basically overall looking at 5K performance, there was no difference in five kilometer running performance uh, for the low carb diet compared to the uh, high carbohydrate diet. Um, and if you look at the, the data, uh, it's very interesting. So during the 5K, when they were in the high carbohydrate diet, 94% of their total energy expenditure came from carbohydrate oxidation. So when they are, we're on the high carbohydrate diet. So when they're on a high carbohydrate diet, they're using a lot of carbohydrates for fuel, 94%, 94%. That's when they're insane. on a low, yeah, when they're on the low carb diet, it went from 94% to 65%. So on a low carb diet, uh, about 65% of their total energy expenditure came from carbohydrate oxidation, which means obviously then 35% came from fat oxidation. So if you think about it, so, um, you know, high intensity, short duration endurance exercise performance uh, was not impaired with the low carbohydrate diet, even though 35% of the total energy expenditure, you know, came from fat oxidation. Or put another way, when they were in the high carbohydrate diet, um, even though 94% of total energy expenditure came from carbohydrate oxidation, that did not improve their performance. And so what we then did is, the last thing I'll say here is we made a calculation and we said, well, well based on Based on our athletes, um, our, our subjects' um, 5K performance, they should be able to run a full marathon in something like three hours and 20 minutes or something like this, uh, which makes them faster than you know 88% of other recreational uh, uh, marathon uh, finishers. So our group of you know of subjects are basically faster uh, um, than basically close to 90% of other uh, marathon finishes, other recreational runners. So if they weren't able to benefit, then therefore the vast majority of other recreational athletes, right, will probably also not benefit uh, from this eating pattern. Now you can make the argument, well, what about the other 10%? Again, that's, that's, that's open for debate. But what we showed is the, the vast majority of recreational athletes, especially obviously in this case, we looked at, at runners, 
um, may not benefit uh, for, uh, 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 from consuming this high carbohydrate uh, diet, right? Because typically what they've been told is to con usually consume between about six and 12 grams per kilogram of body weight of carbohydrate per day, um, you know, for training, competition, et cetera. Well, that's what they were doing in the study and it still didn't improve their performance. So again, maybe we're introducing this possibility that maybe the vast majority of recreational athletes might not benefit from, uh, from this approach. Maybe there's an alternative approach. Right. And that's kind of what you're alluding to in your research is that, hey, maybe a low carbohydrate diet approach is not as bad as we once thought it was. Maybe it can actually be beneficial because one, it doesn't hinder performance. So it's not going to, you know, slow you down or change anything. Maybe in the first couple days, if you develop, uh, I think they call it like keto flu. It's like a common yeah. thing when your body adjusts. Mm -hmm. So maybe you have a couple rough days in there, but long-term, you're looking at, you know, the same performance or possibly better performance in some cases. And two, it's much like, I'll say better for your underlying health than a high processed carbohydrate diet, because there's issues that a lot of endurance athletes, uh, at least in my experience, and from what I've worked with and seen, uh, that they experience that they don't always discuss in relation to the high carbohydrate diet, such as GI upset and digestive issues mm -hmm. and issues once they stop running and get out of the sport with their overall health, joint pain and joint issues. And a lot of that comes back to that insulin resistance and systemic inflammation as well. And, you know, we often think that because someone has good body composition or because they're very active as an athlete, that they're like immune from all those issues. Right. But in yeah. reality, they're just as prone as anyone else. So making sure that you understand and treat the underlying health of your body and not just the performance side as well, because ultimately if your health deteriorates and you can't train, then your performance is obviously going to uh, decline as a result. Yeah. Yeah. Th that's, that's an, that's an important point. Right. And so what, what we try to show was, you know, just one is, is performance impaired or not. Uh, so based, you know, so based on our research and that, that's not just ours, there was a review article that was published, I think last year, that, that looked at this question that's kind of reviewed and summarized the studies in this topic, particularly comparing low carbohydrate or ketogenic diets to the usual diet, which is obviously a high carbohydrate diet. And their findings were, their conclusions were basically the same as the results of our study. And that was basically that the low carbohydrate diet was not impairing exercise performance or put another way, performance can be maintained on the low carbohydrate approach, approach compared to the high carbohydrate approach. So it's not just us, obviously there's, there's other studies that's been done recently, especially over the last five or 10 years that have found similar findings. So we're not saying, right, that it's necessarily gonna improve your performance, maybe for some people, but we're just saying, hey, it's not impairing uh, performance. Now, obviously there's a lot, you know, that still needs to be done. We're doing, we're currently doing a follow-up study. Uh, so, um, but at least from the initial evidence, maybe we're introducing choice, right? An alternative option uh, for athletes. Um, and uh, that, that's an important point. Sometimes people miss that because then there's, they say, well, it's not improving uh, performance. Um, sure. Uh, I'm not saying it's improving performance again, maybe for some people, but I'm just saying it's not, it's not impairing performance. And that is a, it's a big point to make. Cause again, for the last 40 or 50 years or so, we've been telling athletes, there's only one approach. You can only eat this one diet. If you want to improve your performance, if you were to eat the opposite, you're going to impair your performance. And which we're basically showing that that's not, not the case. So obviously here, here's some, you know, two different, you know, uh, options for athletes. And this goes back to the fact, right? The body is really a hybrid engine. It can go back and forth between these two substrates, carbohydrate and fat for fuel. But then the next question is what you're introducing is, so maybe the low carb diet is not impairing performance, um, but what about health, right? And that goes for the low carb diet and for the, and for the high carb diet. And so the study I was just describing, we were looking at um, different uh, uh, lipids and lipoproteins. Um, and the study that we're currently doing uh, will be very interesting uh, because we're, when the athletes are on these, on the different diets, we're using CGM, 
so uh, CGM is continuous glucose monitoring. So they, they're wearing the continuous glucose monitor for the entire time they're on both diets. So I think that will be really interesting results just looking at overall, overall glycemic response and glycemic variability. As you can imagine, there might be some differences between uh, the two diets. Um, and also for the current study, we're, we're also looking at kind of markers of cardio, cardiometabolic health uh, as well. So insulin and in, uh, inflammatory biomarkers, uh, again, things like triglycerides, HDL, uh, LDL, uh, et cetera, based on the, the, so that's currently ongoing. Obviously, I you know, can't really speak any more to that. We'll see what happens. But based on the previous study, it's uh, is very interesting. So um, looking at blood glucose, looking at their glycated hemoglobin, their HbA1c, looking at total cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, triglycerides, HDL, triglycerides to HDL ratio, so, so these are kind of your common markers you, you can use to assess your, you know, health or you know, uh, cardiometabolic health, cardiovascular disease risk. Um, obviously, not, it's a different population. We're not looking at your just your your average, you know, American. We're looking at you know, af, you know athletes, you know, pretty, you know, highly trained uh, competitive recreational athletes. And so that that's another um, understudied, you know, question. So what about athletes? who are on these diets and how is their health being imp uh, you know, impacted? So what we found when they were on the uh, low carbohydrate uh, diet, uh, they saw, again, in comparison to the high carb diet, there uh, uh, they saw significant reductions in their triglycerides. They saw significant reductions in VLDL, which is their very low density lipoprotein levels. And they also saw significant reductions in the triglyceride to HDL ratio. Um, when they were on, or, 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 or that's all things that went down, meaning that's going in the right direction, okay, compared to the high carbohydrate diet. In addition, things that went up was their HDL. So compared to the high carbohydrate diet, their high density lipoprotein, i.e. your kind of good cholesterol, if you want to think about it like that, went up um, uh, for low carb compared to high carb diet. Uh, what also went up was their total cholesterol and LDL cholesterol. So again, people interpret this differently, and we currently have that uh, a paper we're gonna uh, you know submit it soon for publication and see what what people say. But people interpret this differently, right? You can say, well, so on the low carb diet, all these things went in the right direction, great, reduce risk, but these other things didn't go in the right direction, right? So your your cholesterol or your LDL cholesterol, what people refer to as your bad cholesterol, I mean, obviously it's a little bit more complicated than that, uh, didn't go in the right direction, right? So this is this these things over here is conferring a decreased risk. And these things over here is conferring an increased risk. So obviously that's, that's debatable. In my opinion, um, uh, the things that matter actually went in the right direction. Uh, you know, personally don't really, you know, uh, think things, uh, uh, you know, those other biomarkers, total cholesterol or LDL cholesterol are significant uh, uh, predictors. Uh, there's other biomarkers. For example, you can rather look at the uh, LDL phenotype. Uh, again, you can do more advanced testing and look at, LDL pattern A, LDL pattern uh, B. Um, and usually on the low carbohydrate diet, we see an increase in the small dense LDL particle and an increase in the overall LDL particle size shifting from pattern B to pattern A. Again, that, 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 that's, that's a good thing. And again, we saw the same thing in our study and uh, you know, other uh, research basically um, uh, finds the same thing, usually on a low carbohydrate uh, diet. Again, that confers benefit. But again, that's an understudied topic and people definitely need to look into that more, especially in the, you know, from more longer term interventions, right? So is this eating approach and for both eating approaches, right? Uh, you know, how is it impacting their long-term health? Is it an increased risk or decreased risk? Yeah, definitely. And you mentioned a ton of great variables that you can look at to kind of track that, but you could also even get more simple with something like heart rate variability, right? A lot of people have HRV monitors. And I think the best way for people to kind of trial this out because everyone's individual physiology is slightly different and everyone's going to respond a little differently. So if you're really into these sort of things, you can kind of do what I do and kind of, for lack of a better way to put it, self-experiment. So get yourself a glucose monitor. It doesn't have to be a CGM, even just get a basic one over the counter get a basic heart rate variability tracker that's somewhat accurate, right? Or a ring whoop, something that has a little bit of um, credibility behind it, not just like mm -hmm. the $20 thing made in China. Um, and start tracking how your physiological variables change in response to different lifestyle approaches. 
and depending on your health insurance, or uh, in some cases, you can even order lab results uh, yep. through cash pay. And you can literally just kind of do blood work and set up your own little self-study and see mm -hmm. how you like how your body changes and adapts in response to changes in your diet and nutrition approach. Mm -hmm. And I think the next piece that even makes that more interesting is if you keep a journal or log or something that tracks how you're feeling each day, how mentally mm -hmm. alert you are and how focused you are, and overall, just the rate of perceived exertion that you feel during your workouts or training sessions. Because I know in my personal experience, and again, this is kind of like a personal case study, so take it with a grain of salt, I feel like I function better and have better cognitive function and overall focus and alertness when I'm going for a more low carb approach. I have less insulin swings. I have less blood glucose spikes um, because they carry a lot of different effects in, uh, within them physiologically that can hinder cognitive performance, that can hinder uh, your clarity and overall focus. I also feel mm -hmm. like I get better workouts, even though I focus mostly on a strength training perspective, right? I wake up and I work out and I haven't eaten any carbohydrates before I go to the gym and lift. And yet I can still squat 400 pounds and bench press 300 pounds. So just because, you know, we've been told for, you know, literally a century that you need carbohydrates to perform does not mean that you specifically need to rely on them as your primary fuel source for exercise. There are other pathways and other avenues out there. And it's really about finding that unique approach that works best for you. I think that's one of the biggest takeaways from this episode is that you can't just shelter yourself to this one belief that, you know, I must have carbohydrates. I must hit Rice Krispies before I go to the gym. I must, you know, this, that, and the other thing. Because in reality, yeah. you might not need those things. Or same, same argument as we started with pre-workout, right? You might not need a full pre-workout powder that costs $2 a serving. You might just need, you know, some caffeine pills and get the same effect. So mm -hmm. really, you know, be curious about your health and take charge of it and start looking into these different factors that impact not only your overall performance, but your overall health and how you go about your day. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah good point. I mean, again, even in the studies that, that we've done, uh, um, in, there's there's individual responses and variability. So I think people have to understand that when you, when you, when you look at a study and you look at the results, right, usually you're not looking at individual results. Usually we don't report that as aggregate results. And, and what I can tell you, whether it's a study that we're currently doing or the, the previous study I was describing, you know, people did differently on, on diets, right? Some people uh, preferred the low carbohydrate diet and some people preferred the high carbohydrate diet, right? So they felt better on one or the other. They performed better on one, or one or the other. And so obviously you're, you're, what you're saying, uh, you know, is a good point about self-experimentation. Obviously people have the capacity, you know, to do that. And you can see for yourself, right. How you fare on the, on the high carb approach or obviously the, the, uh, the low carb approach. And at the same time, also, you know, track some simple, uh, metrics as you were, uh, describing, uh, as well, or just see how you're, how you're feeling. Yeah. Uh, in, in general. So, yeah. Yeah, definitely. This has been an amazing discussion about your work, Dr. Prince, and all the kind of pros and even some of the cons that come with a low carbohydrate diet. And it's very interesting how, you know, for so long, it seems like we've had our beliefs about low carbohydrate eating approaches rather inaccurate, for lack of a better way to put it. Do you have any kind of closing thoughts or closing remarks that you want to add in about low carbohydrate eating? or the pre-workout supplementation like we talked about earlier? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll stick with the, the low carbohydrate, you know, um, you know, stuff. And that's kind of what we've been doing more recently. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, I mean, if people are listening and if you're, you know, <laughs> interested, especially from a science standpoint, I mean, we definitely need more people uh, to do this kind of work, um, specifically from a sports performance uh, standpoint. So yes, we're, we're doing it. Um, we have colleagues at Ohio state, you know, uh, Jeff Olick's lab doing it. We also collaborate with, uh, Tim Noakes from South Africa and, uh, um, Dom Diagostino from university of South Florida, um, Andrew Kutnick, uh, uh um, Institute of human, human and machine cognition in Pensacola. So we have some great people we work with and collaborate with. And again, there's some other people in the U S and, uh, you know, internationally who do some of this work, but not a lot. And so we need more people to be interested in this work. 
Uh, also funding, I mean, funding is, is a big deal. As you, if you're wondering like, why, why is people not doing more of this, this stuff? Because, you know, funding, you know, it's hard to, you know, get funding to do this research, especially if you're doing so-called, you know, strange research or um, you're going against the grain, so to speak. It's hard to, hard to get funding. So uh, there's so many things that still needs to be explored from a performance standpoint from a low carb diet. I mean, like, what about team sports, you know? Um, <laughs> All this stuff I'm, I'm talking about is mostly running, you know, but what about, what about soccer? What about football? Uh, what about tennis? You know, what, what about these other athletes? What about recovery? What about, um, you know, what about hand-eye uh, hand coordination, right? Concentration. There's so many things you can, you can study and it needs to be studied. And unfortunately, it hasn't been studied. These are the things that we should have been studying in the last, you know, 40 or 50 years, but we've been stuck in one, uh, you know, paradigm. And unfortunately, a lot of time, um, has been lost uh, with that. So uh, we'll keep doing the, the work and I implore obviously others to, um, to help in any way that you can, whether you wanna fund that work or maybe you're an XI science student and maybe this is something you wanna, you wanna join in on, but you're certainly welcome to, to come to Grove City College and, and help <laughs> out uh, with, that, uh, with that research. Um, and then, I mean, I'm excited from a, that, from, at least from a health standpoint, right, that um, that has received a lot of attention. I mean, I can just think of the last 10 years, I mean, 10 years ago, when I became more interested in this topic, how it was still like a, you know, taboo topic, or, you know, you weren't <laughs> really allowed to, you know, talk about it, uh, or people call you, oh, that's quackery, you know, that's um, unscientific. <laughs> Where today, you know, people have almost changed their, you know, uh, their opinions about it. And we've seen different organizations I mean, look like the American Diabetes Association just a couple of years ago. They all of a sudden, you know, are basically saying uh, or rec rec basically recommending a low carbohydrate eating approach is the best approach for those with, with, di with diabetes. So I think there's definitely change. Uh, on, uh, it's happening very slowly. Over, uh, and it's been happening, especially over the last, you know, five or 10 years or so. But obviously, there's a lot that still needs to happen. I mean, you have the dietary guidelines, right, that comes out every five years. Um, the last edition was not, was unfortunately uh, disappointing, uh, <laughs> as most of the other editions. But again, change is definitely in the air. And I think most people, uh, or a lot of people have um, heard about low carbohydrate diets and ketogenic diets. Uh, become interested in it. And as you were saying, uh, you can do self-experimentation. Uh, hopefully you have a good physician, right? That, that, that you can, that can work with you, right? So if you have, again, as most people have a chronic disease or condition, maybe you can go to your physician and say, well, I want to try this. You know, I heard a lot of good things about it. There's a lot of published research on it, right? If somebody says there's not, they need to get their head examined, right? There's a lot of research on this, right? Especially again, if you're overweight, you're obese, you have a lot of different uh, health issues, right, then talk to your physician, right, because hopefully that physician can then work with you, right, and monitor you, because a lot of times in, in that scenario, medical supervision is important, the person's taking medications, right, and uh, there are some scenarios, like if a person's taking hypertensive medications, or uh, if they're diabetic and taking insulin or other oral glucose lowering agents, where usually they want to work with their physician, because, as they're, as they're on the low carbohydrate diet and their, their, their health is improving, they need to start tapering off those medications. Um, and so I would, I would really you know, implore people to, to look into that research and uh, I think they will discover there's a myriad of health benefits, really pleiotropic effects, just as we see from exercise. I mean, exercise really has a pleiotropic effects, multi-systemic effects, and that seems to be the case uh, with carbohydrate restriction. Uh, in the context, especially for those who are insulin resistance, which seems to be the vast majority of the, uh, of the population. For sure. That is a great point. Definitely always consult your primary care provider before you make any changes in your diet and lifestyle, as we've discussed. But as we've discussed, too, this is an investment in your personal health, right? If mm -hmm. you start to improve your underlying health and you start to kind of taper back on the amount of medications you need in result of that. Maybe you, you know, have less time that you have to go and spend in a doctor's office for different appointments. Maybe you don't have to see as many specialists, you know, mm -hmm. that cuts back on copay costs, insurance payments, that gives you more time in your day, you feel more productive, and more energetic and alert, 
like this can really be life-changing for people to take charge of their health. So highly encourage you to do that. That's a great closing point, Dr. Prince. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I would, uh, I would just, I mean, just remember these are lifestyle diseases, right? And the medications are just putting a bandaid on the problem. I mean, uh, (laughs) so I mean, think about it. Most people who are taking multiple medications, you know, over many, many, many years, as they start taking more and more medications, that means your condition is getting worse. It's not getting better. Right. And so, I mean, if we have to, there has to be a paradigm shift definitely within the medical system and under, understand and realize that symptoms are not the disease. And um, unfortunately we say, well, you have this symptom and that's a disease. And here's a particular pharmaceutical to treat this disease. These are lifestyle diseases. So lifestyle medicine really should be the first line of treatment or at, at least at minimum used in conjunction with a pharmaceutical approach. Like, well, like I said, hopefully you can work with your uh, primary care physician and use these different lifestyle approaches, whether it's, uh, you know, different dietary factors or exercise, et cetera, to uh, improve your health and hopefully, you know, uh, take fewer uh, uh, medications as a result because your health is actually uh, improving. Yeah, for sure. Dr. Prince, for people who want to find out more about you and what you're doing and keep up to date on your research or maybe get involved, is there a good way to connect with you, LinkedIn or social media or anything? Yeah, I mean, you can, if you just Google, uh, you know, my name, you know, um, you'll, or, and Grove City College, where, you know, I'm currently at, uh, you can find my profile page on, uh, on the web, on Grove City College, Excise Science Department, and then you can find my email address there, my contact information. So if you want to send an email, you can use that. Um, social media, um, I'm on Twitter. So if you want to find me you know, on Twitter and, and send a message there. That's uh, that's also uh, you know fine. Um, and sure, you can if you if you're interested or have a question or you're just interested in the in the work that we're doing. Because like I said, the work that that we're currently doing is is really focusing on on uh, um, the science of carbohydrate restriction from a health performance standpoint. And obviously, we're also doing some interesting work on exogenous ketone supplements which is a totally different conversation and (laughs) subject but also obviously really interesting since that's a whole different different brand new line of supplements and so if you're interested in that um i'll be you know happy to help or ask answer questions for sure we'll link to all that below so if you didn't quite catch it you can just click on the links and check out more about dr prince and his research dr prince really appreciate your time it was a pleasure having you on the show man thank you very much appreciate it Thank you for listening to this episode of the Brown Body Health and Fitness Podcast. If you like this episode, please make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform and share this episode with a friend who you think would enjoy hearing it. Additionally, if you want to help support this podcast and keep future episodes going, please check out our links below where you can support us directly or through engaging in any of our affiliate marketing links. Last, please make sure you check us out on social media at Braun Body and leave a five-star review, especially if you're listening on iTunes or Spotify.